Today we are continuing along in our study of Elijah. And this week we have come to probably the most iconic text in the life of Elijah. Many of us have heard this uh, often. You may have heard it growing up. You may have heard it from the pulpit. I don't know, but it's, it's a familiar text. And I hope today that as we walk through this today, I was telling them in Sunday school, when you hear a text uh, often, sometimes it's, it becomes kind of monotonous. You know what I mean? You, you don't really want to, it's not that you don't want to, but sometimes your mind just doesn't retrieve from it what you normally would from an obscure text because you're like, wow, that's new. Man, I've never heard that before. Let me see what I can gain from that. What does the Word of God have for me today? But in this text, I hope there's a few things that the Lord will bring out to you today about this challenge at Carmel. I'm going to call it Carmel because when I say caramel, I think about caramel that you put on ice cream or something like that. So I'm going to try my best to say Carmel. And uh, you may not have that problem, but I do, and I like ice cream. So, uh, and, and so we're going to look at the challenges at Carmel. You know, in life, we have challenges of all types. We have all kinds of, we have challenges of school, relationships while in school, relationships with our parents. We have dating relationships, which potentially turn into marital relationships. We have challenges in life through our choices of hobby and education. We have challenges of all types in and through our lives. Life itself sometimes, just by itself without adding any of those words, is a challenge, right? We have a lot of challenges. And as we recall those challenges of the past, we can see where we came out as victors and as losers. Seriously, <laughs> we have all lost some challenges in life, haven't we? We all have. You know, things may have changed in each one of those scenarios in our lives, but one thing that I pray was consistent in your life was a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because whether you, in your challenge, you were victorious or were found uh, on the losing end, you were not alone. But in those outcomes, God was looking out for you and for your best and his glory. Because the Bible tells us all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So whether you win in a challenge or whether you lose in a challenge, if you have the Lord on your side, you know that God's got something in it for you, right? He does. So we need to look at challenges in that viewpoint. We don't really ever lose, we learn. I've heard that, say, I've heard that said before, you, you don't ever lose, you learn. And as we look at this text today, we continue to move through 1 Kings, we find ourselves at the greatest challenge thrown down in the Bible. I believe it's the greatest challenge ever thrown down in the Bible. You may argue that David and Goliath may have been the greatest challenge in the Bible, but I don't think so much. You've got one, one prophet. He says, am I alone the only man of God? He says that later on in this text. Why does he say that? You'll find out in a minute. And a lot of times, uh, many a times, people may feel like they're the only person of God in a situation because other people will not have a spine or a backbone to step up and say that we are too. And they waver between two gods. But let us dive into this scripture this morning and see the challenges presented to the witnesses 
the rules of the challenge, the failure in the challenge, the victory in the challenge, and the outcome of the challenge. We're going to look at these things today through this text, and what does it mean for us today in our context? What does it mean for us today in our lives? So let's begin there in 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 20 through 40. Now, that's a lot of scripture. So I'm just going to read the text as I come upon it, okay? So the first verses that we're looking at is just verses 20 and 21, and we see the witnesses of the challenge. Look there, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. It says, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Not a word. So the witnesses of this challenge is Elijah, Ahab, the people of Israel, and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. That's who we have standing out here on Mount Carmel to see what's going to go down. Elijah had told, and y'all remember in the previous text there, if you look back up into verse 19 of the same chapter, it says, Now therefore, this is Elijah speaking to Ahab, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table, which is a proclamation to Ahab himself. He's saying, look here, you have no backbone. You let all these prophets of false gods sit at your wife's table and have a meal. And people who you invite to your table, it says you've got a relationship with, or you're wanting to get to know them, one or the other, right? You're either wanting to get to know them, or you have a relationship with them, those who sit at your table. In your house, it's a big deal. That's a big deal. So we have, the, like I said, we have the children of Israel. We have the prophets of Baal and Asherah. You know who is uh, absent from this picture? Jezebel. Jezebel is not present here. The queen decides to sit at the house. She, she, she stays back, which we'll find out later on why that plays into a big part of this. But Ahab calls for the gathering Calls for this gathered from the request of Elijah. You know, witnesses are not always innocent bystanders. You know that? They're not always innocent bystanders. They are, uh, witnesses sometimes are active, active participants in the activity to which they are called to testify of. You know, a witness doesn't always have to be someone standing on the side. The other day I was trying to explain the Gospels, why there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all witnesses of Christ's life. Well, why does, why does some gospel say this and some says this? It's kind of like if you're at a four-way street. You've probably heard this illustration before. If not, here you go. You've got Matthew on this corner, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's a car accident in the four-way. Each one of them sees that accident from a different perspective, so they're going to write differently about it. And it's going to be about the same wreck, but yet there's going to be different viewpoints, different perspectives. That's the reason why you got the gospels. Now, they all have different even more in-depth reasoning than that, but that's a good way of understanding that, okay? So here, we've got witnesses. 
And the scripture tells us that we are witnesses, right? In Acts 1.8, it tells us, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are witnesses in a twofold way. We are witnesses in a twofold way. We are witnesses by what we have seen in Christ and through his life, but we are also to witness of the change that occurred within us due to his indwelling through the Holy Spirit. We not only say we, we see this of Christ, we see this of Christ in the Word of God. We say we are witnesses unto what Christ has done in me. Here at Mount Carmel, we have got the Jewish people, we've got the people of Israel, we got the prophets of Baal, we got Elijah. And we're going to see how they find themselves, the Israelites find themselves included in this challenge because they're asked to be, uh, they're asked to witness and to be witnesses of what's going on. The prophets of Baal and Asherah are to witness between their gods and the God. They are going to both witness the activity, or better yet, inactivity, of their God versus the all-consuming, all-powerful God of Israel. They will, be, they will be witnesses. But not by their mouths, nor by their changed lives, those prophets of Baal and Asherah, but by their sacrificed life to the foolishness of pursuing false gods. We have that as a testimony and a witness in here, we ain't gotten to it yet. I don't want to give away the end of the story. Many of you know it already. But nonetheless, their sacrificed life will be the testimony to the inactivity of a false god. Many of us worship false gods. We put so many things above God. We call upon those false gods at times and we realize they're doing nothing for us. You know why? Because they're not living. They're dead. And many a times they're created by the creation not, uh, they are not the creator himself. So therefore, they can't do anything unless we animate them. A false god has no power above what we give it. But the true God has had power long before we could ever fathom it. So the witnesses are the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And of course, we have Elijah and Ahab there on the mountain as well. Ahab has called the people together, but, you know, he ain't got a spine enough to tell his wife to come do something, right? <laughs> I, I just don't want to tell my wife what to do. I don't want to tell her to come out here, you know? He's a big coward. You notice nowhere in here does he argue with Elijah. He always does what Elijah says for him to do, doesn't he? Man, he's just, he's just a spineless jellyfish. Anyway, let's, let's keep moving through the text here. Verse 21, I said 22, but really this should be 21 through 24, and I, I missed, that's, that's my error. So verses 21 through 24, but, but I want to hit something before we really get into verse 22, but in verse 21, there's something very important we need to see. Let's look there in verse 21. It says, Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And what was their response? No response, which is a response. It says, but the people answered him not a word. No response is a response. This is what the people are saying. They're like, we plead the fifth. 
Uh, we, we, we just don't know. Basically, they're saying, we're going to wait and see. If you've been changed by the grace of God, you've already seen. There's nothing else you need to see. But if you think you need more to be seen, hold on to your pants. It's fixing to get real. Elijah's telling them, you, you, you should be making a decision right now. You should be speaking up. You should be speaking up. But they don't. There's some issues we must deal with before the rules are addressed. There is a call to the Israelites to publicly make known where they stand. And as I read, it, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. The Israelites did not say a word. No answer is an answer. When we choose not to answer, all types of answers are filled in, right? All types of answers are filled in. And, and many times, there are only two potential responses when you don't respond, when you don't answer. There's either one that everybody feels like is the truth that should come from your mouth, and then when you don't respond, they're like, oh, yeah, they're guilty. Right? They're guilty. And that's the problem. That's the problem with us. We've got to stand firm in Christ. We've got to stand firm in the God of the Bible. It doesn't matter. I mean, this is the man of God who says, he says to the king, who is the, the, the spineless puppet of the queen, and he tells him, you go get all the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, 450 of them, matter of fact, and you get all the prophets of Asherah, 400 of them, and who sit at your wife's table, whom you sit at too, you tell them to come on out here, and let's just have a showdown. Let's have a showdown out here on Mount Carmel. And let's see which God is legit. This is one man who has been out by a brook, being fed by ravens and a creek. <laughs> and then he goes into Zarephath and being fed by a dying widow and her son. And then God supplies and not only supplies for them to be, to be uh, fed for probably three months, possibly even three years. Well, it's possibly three years. Then the son dies and God resurrects him. And Elijah's like, man, I've seen what the Lord could do. I've seen what he's done in my life. So I know I can come boldly and I know where I stand. What has Christ done in your life so that you can boldly stand before any false prophets, any false gods, any man? Can you stand when the time comes to stand? Are you going to cower down? Are, are we like Elijah or are we like the people, the, the people of Israel? Many a times we want to say, I'm like Elijah, but we line out our two front teeth. Many a times we're like the people of Israel. Well, I don't know. Let's just see. That's about the, I'm going to tell you, that's, that's one of the most hated quotes of a youth pastor from their students. We're going to have an event. You going to go? I don't know. I want to wait and see. Who else is going? Who else is going? And that's what these guys are saying. That's what the people of Israel is saying. Who else is going? And nobody else said a word, so none of us are going. Well, good, you're just going to miss out on all the glory of God. Well, you're not going to miss out on it, but you're gonna, you, your eyes are going to be open real quick. Here in just a little bit, your eyes are going to be open. It's a terrible place to be when you would not profess who your God is, little g or capital G. At least if you, they profess their God was Baal, he knew where they stood. And if they professed God, the God of Israel is their God, he knew where they stood. But they're out there wavering between two opinions. He said, how long are you going to do that? How long are you going to be on the fence? 
Make a decision today. Make a decision today is what Elijah's saying. And that's what I'm telling you today. Make a decision today. Where do you stand? Who is your God? Who is your God? Have you made that abundantly and undoubtedly clear who your God is? Are we the people of Israel or are we Elijah? Who are we? Last week I asked you, are we Obadiah or are we Elijah? Both of them are pretty positive people to be. But this week you got two major ones, two very different folks. You got people who can't make a decision over here versus Elijah who says, God's made all my decisions for me and I've submitted to the lordship of him and I followed him. Which one are you? Are you submitted and surrendered over here with Elijah? Or are you over here with the people of Israel that, that are flaky and wavery? And if they got touched, they're going to fall down. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Mark 8, 38 tells us this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And this is similarly said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is what he's saying. Listen, if we're not going to profess Christ and profess the God of the Bible that he is ours here, he will not confess you as his there. We must live a life beyond doubt that we are children of, the, of God. We are children of God. People shouldn't have to ask us, where do you stand? Elijah shouldn't have had to ask the people of God, the people of Israel, where do you stand? Undoubtedly, it should have been with Jesus Christ. But they have grown lazy and they have grown complacent and satisfied in what the culture was giving them. Is that where we are today? We've grown satisfied and conditioned to accept what the culture gives us today, led by, by people that do not pursue the one true God. Yeah, that's where we are today. We need to choose to worship the one true God. Follow today. If, God of, if the God of the Bible is Lord, submit to him today. Do not put it off. Don't waver between two opinions any longer. Don't put it off. Now, knowing the people's heart, Elijah lays down the rules for the challenge. He lays down the rules for the challenge. These people and you and I need to realize the vast difference in power and truth between the gods that are created versus the God that creates. These gods that are created, we create them in our minds. We dictate what they do. We dictate what they're over. We dictate when they show up and when they don't show up. That's like people who say they're going to have healing services. And they're going to dictate when God shows up when they don't. On March so-and-so, we're going to have a healing service. Oh, really? You're going to dictate when God's going to show up? If you're going to dictate when God shows up, why don't you go down to the hospital and touch everybody It's a hospital? Why don't you go to children's hospital and touch everybody It's a children's hospital? You can't control God. We pray for healing. 
We do. I believe God is still the great physician and heal anytime he wants to if it's his will. But us, we go, I'm not saying we do that, but there's some denominations that do that kind of stuff. I, I, don't, I don't think it's right. If someone needs healing, the Bible says to call forth the elders and pray over them, anoint their head with oil and pray over them. Doesn't mean you call on a big old service to have a show and make people charge people money and as Benny Hinn did, pay his own folks to come in there and act like they're sick and then make them fall back by touching them, you know, all that silly nonsense. God calls us to be real followers of Jesus Christ. If people need to be healed, they need to come to the Lord. They come to the leadership of the church, and we as leaders in the church should be pursuing holiness in our lives. So that when they come to us, they're not coming to... Now listen, we're still sinful people. We're not perfect by any means. We're not Jesus. And nobody ever will be again. But when they can come to us, we are pursuing Christ. It's such a desired, heartfelt motivation. Then when they come to us, they know we're at least coming to people that are truly striving to be holy as Christ is holy. We want them to pray over us. It's what we should desire. We should want those. This is... This is, there's a big difference between the God that creates and gods that are created. The God who creates, he does things on his timetable in his own way. We don't understand why. That's the reason why sometimes we pray for healing of people. Praise God they're healed on this side of heaven. Sometimes we pray for people and God heals them on the other side. Heals them in heaven. I don't know why God chooses the way he does, but he does. But I'm not God. I can't dictate the healing power of God. All I know is I can be faithful. And I can trust him to the outcome. That's one thing we've got to realize. We trust God with the outcome. It's not always what we want, because you know what? We're not God. But it's always what he wants. And we might not understand it in the moment. It might be very hard in the moment. But if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in God, you're going to know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It might not be what you want, but you trust him in it because he is the God that creates. Elijah explains the process of how to prepare the bull. He goes through some very descriptive things, how to prepare the bull, and that each side gets one bull and one chance. He says, all right, Baal, Asherah, y'all get a chance. I'm going to get a chance. In verse 22, it says, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them, uh, give us, get, let them give us two bulls. And let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. They agreed on something, didn't they? Like a church. We agree on something. It may not be the most important thing to agree on, but we're going to agree on where you cut up a bull and put it on an altar. But we can't agree on which one's going to be our God. You always heard that about this is the sacred cow. We can agree on the sacred cow, but can we agree on who, the God, who our God is? Can we agree on who our God is? Elijah explains that process. He tells them to go through all the processes of prepping the sacrifice for their opportunity, and he'll do the same for his opportunity. 
All right, you do this, I'll do this. But listen, don't, no, no, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't put a fire underneath it. This is going to be the test. This is going to be the trial. Whose God is powerful enough to bring fire to consume this sacrifice? Whose God is powerful enough to do that? So in this, all the people agreed to the rules of the challenge. They couldn't agree to who their God was, but they could agree to the rules. I hope that we are beyond the mentality of the Israelites at this time. I hope we can be more concrete and firm on who our God is. So now we have the rules of the challenge. We've got the witnesses of the challenge. Up first, the prophets of Baal. And here is the failure in the challenge. Notice the failure doesn't come when our God comes, but it comes when theirs does. Verses 25 through 29, the failure in the challenge. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God and put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning, from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon. Then Elijah mocked them, which I think is hilarious. Isn't it great to know that, that we can have <laughs> men of God that can mock people? You know, whatever. Maybe I shouldn't enjoy that as much as I do. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Man, these guys are crazy. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered. No one paid attention. Elijah is going back to the first of these verses here, beginning there in verse 25. Elijah is courteous and considerate to the great numbers of the Baal prophets and Asherah prophets. He's like, I'm going to give you a chance. Y'all got a bunch of folks to hoop and holler and do your thing. You know, I'm going to let you do that. You know what I mean? I'm going to let you do it for as long as you want to. Because you know what? I think it's going to be funny. I mean, this is one time when, when there is humor in the Bible. I really believe. I believe Elijah was leaned up against a tree, and he's just like, <laughs> you guys are crazy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's many of them. So to come to a conclusion on how things should be done, they probably formulated a committee. They thought about it. They decided on a chairperson. Then they had to get three approved quotes before really starting their efforts toward how to proceed. Probably not. Probably not. I'm just kidding. Probably not. But here we are. So here we are. They jumped to the challenge and began calling on Bell. It says from morning even till noon. That's a long time. That's the break. That's the break of day until noontime. That's you know people getting hungry by then. Why is this sacrifice not getting cooked up? You know something's got to happen. We getting hungry standing out here on this hillside. Why are your false god not coming through? We want some barbecue. You know something, something going on here. A brisket or something. Well, it ain't happening. So Elijah mocks their living God. He says maybe he's meditating or busy or on a journey, sleeping or needs to be awakened. One Old Testament scholar, his name's Dr. Rob Allen, he believes the, the wording here suggests that Elijah was taunting them with the idea that Baal may, may have stepped into the celestial men's room. Maybe, he's, uh, maybe he stepped away. 
Now listen, this is the Jewish historian Edersheim. He explains this Baal worship. He said, first rose a comparatively moderate, though already wild, cry to Baal, followed by a dance around the altar, beginning with a swinging motion to and fro. Now listen, it's crazy stuff now. The howl then became louder and louder and the dance more frantic. They whirled round and round, ran wildly through each other's ranks, always keeping up a circular motion. The head bent low so that their disheveled hair swept the ground. Ordinarily, the madness now became infectious and the onlookers looked in the frenzied dance, joined, excuse me, the frenzied dance. But Elijah knew how to prevent this. It was noon, and for hours they had kept up their wild rites. With cutting taunts and bitter irony, Elijah now reminded them that, since Baal was Elohim, the fault must lie with them. He might be otherwise engaged, and they must cry louder. Stung to madness, they became more frantic than before. And what we know as, and what we know as the seance and third acts in these feasts ensued. The wild howls turned into diabolical yells. In their madness, the priests bit and cut themselves with two-edged swords, which they carried, and with lances. As the blood began to flow, the frenzy reached its highest peak. When first one, then others, commenced to prophesy, moaned and groaned, then burst into rhapsodic cries, accusing themselves, or speaking to Baal, or uttering incoherent broken sentences. This is some crazy, wild stuff. And I don't know if you've watched some of the nonsense that happens in some of these denominations around our nation and around the world. They do a lot of this stuff and they call it Christianity. It says they were walking around in circles and they were doing their hair like this. And it says their hair was touching the ground and they were weaving in and out of each other and, and waving their arms and waving their arms and doing all this kind of stuff and they're waving their arms and they're, they're doing goofy stuff. And then they get to biting themselves. Ah, I mean, like, what is wrong with these people? You think they're possessed with a demon, which they were. I mean, psychotic kind of crazy stuff. And then Elijah goes, Let's see how crazy they'll get. Maybe your God's out going to the bathroom. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's, maybe he's asleep. Wake him up. You're not loud enough. You're not doing enough work to call on your God. That's the thing. God's done all the work. We can call on our God anytime we need to. We don't have to do work to call on God. We call on God because he's changed our lives. Could you imagine being there? And it says usually it was so engrossing that the people would join in with them. But you notice, you notice who did not join in with them? The people of Israel or Elijah, none of them did. They're all sitting there going, still don't know which God I serve, but that's pretty crazy. Don't know if I want to do that. Never had a desire to bite myself until I bleed. There are congregations and denominations that do this stuff. And, and they don't claim Baal, they claim Christ. You know, I mean, not baby biting and cutting themselves, but singing when they're singing in circles with their head down, walking around like this. Listen, my, my praise is to the, to, the, to the Lord above, not to the ground below. I don't have any reason to hold my head low when Christ has saved me and redeemed me. Now, before he saved me and redeemed me, yeah, I'm, I'm low. I'm like a worm 
is like what one of our hymns say, I'm redeemed, I'm saved, I can look to the one who has saved me. I have no reason to hold my head down when I've been saved by the grace of God because when I look to the Father, he's not seeing me, he's seeing the blood of his son on me. I don't have to bite myself and have blood run down me. My blood doesn't do anything. Jesus' blood does it all. I don't need my blood to be poured out. God did that in my place for my sins. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus died once for all, and he'll never have to do it again. So I don't need to go bite myself like I'm some deranged dog. They got, they, they leaped up and down. They were jumping up and down. It says on the altar. They're jumping up and down on the altar. I mean, could you imagine what a crazy sight this was? They continued until time for the evening sacrifice. No answer. Cut themselves. No answer. Leapt up and down. No answer. Cried louder. No answer. You know why? Because their God is dead. Their God is dead. And as I said before, we create a lot of gods for ourselves. And then we wonder why when we run to them, why they're quiet and silent. And why we get no, we get no forgiveness, we get no grace from the gods we create. It's because they're dead. They have no life. But if you go to Jesus Christ, he is alive and well. That tomb is empty. He walks with me and he talks with me a long life's there away. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That's my God. I don't have to do crazy acts. I don't have to do goofy, weird stuff. I don't have to, definitely don't have to bite myself or cut myself or do any things like that. All I got to do is go to my knees. And my father's with an open ear awaiting my cry. That's all I got to do. That's all you got to do. All you have to do. We don't need to fail to confess the true God. Because in that is eternal failure. We need to confess the true God as Lord and truly find victory. That's where we find true victory. The victory is... In the challenge, look at verses 30 to 39. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. All right now, hold up, what's he going to do? So all the people came near to him. Oh, they finally are obeying Elijah. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. You notice he did not use the altar that they used. I'm staying as far away from that, man. Get that away from me. I don't want to be near that psycho crazy stuff. He's like, I'm going to rebuild this altar. And Elijah, in verse 31, took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. See, the altar was even built in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two sails of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water, which water pots were uh, barrels, basically. Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench 
with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, you notice, Elijah didn't do any of that work. He asked the other people to do it, and they were willing to do it. They were like, you know what, this, this ain't as crazy as that other stuff. We'll go fill some water pots. And you may say, well, how in the world did they get water? We've been talking about a drought the whole time. Well, the Mediterranean Sea is not very far from the, from, the, from the base of Mount Carmel. So, I mean, that took a little time. So it was pretty late in the evening. So they're going down there, and they're getting, I mean, barrels of water, dumping, dumped it on there, soaked it up. And then he said, not only that, fill up the whole trench with water, too. So they have built up a trench. They've absolutely soaked the sacrifice. They've soaked the sacrifice. They've soaked the altar. They've soaked the wood. Everything is soaking wet. And if any of you have ever tried to build a campfire, that ain't exactly how you do that. And he says, uh, he, he speaks to the Lord there. He starts in verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering at the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Have you noticed, you know, what's, what's been a common theme of all these things that we've been talking about the last few weeks? It's at the word of the Lord. It's at the word of the Lord. If we move without the word of the Lord, we're moving without the Lord. We have got to move at the word of the Lord. And he says, hear me, O Lord, hear, hear me, there in verse 37, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's pretty, pretty astounding right there, okay? Because they've not yet, they've not yet, really. But he already knows what the Lord is going to do. He trusts him for God to be faithful in what God says he's going to do. God's all about turning people back to him. You trust him for it and he'll do it. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. And it consumed all the wood, and it consumed the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. This is the victory of the challenge. Elijah asked for God to affirm five things in this prayer. He says, God, affirm that you are the God in Israel. Affirm that. God, affirm that I am your servant. I followed you all these days. Affirm that, God, by sending your fire. Affirm the fact that I have done all these things at your word. Not at my will, not at my desire. I want to do this at your will. He says, I want you to affirm that you are the Lord God. You are Elohim. You are the Lord God. And I want you to affirm that you have turned their backs to you. Now, he's praying this in front of everybody. And these people out here, they've already said, they didn't say a word as to which God they're going to serve. But he's like, Lord, I know you're going to turn their hearts back to them. I'm just waiting to see what you're, going, what you're going to do. You know, so Elijah doesn't do any hooping and hollering. It ain't about Elijah. It ain't about bringing attention to him. He comes up and he gets 12 stones to represent who? Not himself. He gets 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He, gets the, he asks the people to, to, to get the water to put on the altar. They handle everything as they need to. They do the process as they should. But then he says, I'm leaving it up to God. God's put me here. I'm going to do what God's told me to do, but I'm, I'm, I'm not making it about me. Listen, 
ministry and standing up is not about you. It's about who you stand up in. It's about what you stand up for. And Elijah's making that abundantly and undoubtedly clear. It's not about me. It's about him. And he's fixing to show you. Come near. <laughs> Could you imagine? I don't know how near they came. I don't know how near they came. Because when the fire of the Lord fell, it cons- I mean, like, this is a super consuming fire. I mean, I can't even fathom how much heat had to be in that. They felt, they felt the Lord. <laughs> the fire of the Lord failed and consumed the burnt sacrifice. The wood, the stones, the dust licked up all the water that was in the trench. All of that. Now you tell me, what would be your response? Which one's God? The one that had no answer, no voice, no word? From all of the work that was put into that from morning until the evening sacrifice all day long. You've been sitting out there all day long going, wow, this is, I don't, I, you, know, you ever watch something and you just grin and bear your teeth? You're like, I don't, you know, I don't want to watch, but, you know, golly, that's, that's rough, you know, watching those prophets of Baal. But then when God answers, it don't take long, does it? The thing that took the longest was probably getting the water in those water pots and pour, pouring it on there. It wasn't God's response. Because as soon as he finished that prayer, that fire fell and boom, licked it up. Licked all of it up. There was no stone. Could you imagine being there and seeing it? I mean, if you don't say what they say after that happens, you can do that a rough for your life because it might be hitting you next. <laughs> they didn't know. They didn't know what a tremendous and frightening sight that must have been. That God, just as soon as Elijah finishes that prayer, because he said don't put any fire under it. The fire had to come from above. That's, that's impressive. And it licked it all up. Licked it all up. So here's the outcome of the challenge. We'll finish here. Outcome of the challenge. Verse 39 and 40. Now when all the people saw it, which how could they not, they fell on their faces And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What other response is there? What other response is there? Have you you seen the power of God in your life or in the life of someone near you? Have you ever seen the power of God? I mean, I, I know we've probably never seen nothing like that. But I mean, if we've seen the power of God, if you've seen that wayward child or that wayward friend come to faith, that's just as magnificent and tremendous and literally frightening than seeing this. Because you see the power over the stone, cold, dead heart. It's just as miraculous. Let us not grow uh, numb to the power of God in the work of salvation. It is amazing how God works. And we don't ever need to grow numb to the power of God's saving grace. It might not be a physical fire doing what it did there, but I want to tell you, it's, it's an eternal change. That altar may be rebuilt one day. It may have been rebuilt later on. I could go back and read through the Old Testament. We may find that it was rebuilt at some point. But let me tell you something. When a heart's been changed, a heart's been changed for eternity. That's the wonder-working power of God. When we look at that, it says that they said he is the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. 
And Elijah said to them in verse 40, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Executed them there. Boy, he's gone from hiding at the brook Cherith to being with the, the widow at, at Zarephath. You know, God had put him out there on those outskirts for a while to prepare him, to bring him in for this. Now listen, even in this, we're going to see. We sometimes are still fearful, even after we see the mighty, wonder-working power of God. But right here, though, Elijah is bold. And how many of you have ever shared the gospel? Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and seen them come to faith in Jesus Christ? I'm going to tell you something. We need to get after it. If you've never seen that, we need to be getting after it. There's lost people all around us. We've got to be sharing the gospel. I've seen it happen. It's a, like if you've gone on mission trips, it's a whole lot easier to see that happen because people are a lot more receptive to the gospel in other places where they don't have all the amenities. We, we're so conditioned to our culture and believing that we've got so many gods that, that meet our needs. But if you go overseas where they don't have all the the, the the pretty things, the shiny things that we have here. You'll see people that truly understand what it means to have a, have a God that, that's real. I hope that you've shared the gospel with somebody, though. And we need to be faithful in that. For some of you, you've already been able to... I, I, other night, I took my armband. I went to take my armband off. It snapped in half. I'd had that one for several years. It was, it was an old one. But uh, I've trained some of you on how to share the gospel using those armbands. Listen, that's a very easy communication piece right there on your arm. All right? Let's make sure we're talking about Jesus. He's worthy of it. And you may say, you may say, gosh, that's, that's extreme, Elijah. Why, why are you taking him out and killing all them prophets? Why are you doing that? Well, I was reading, one commentator gave this illustration. I thought it was pretty good. Some read that last verse and say, what an extreme response. Is it? Is it an extreme response? What would you think of a physician who found a mass of rapidly growing malignant cells in your abdomen and said to you, I think we better remove some of those cells. Or I'd like to do just a little minor surgery. No. A good physician would see that deadly mass and would say, we have to get all those cells out of there, along with any surrounding areas that may be contaminated. That wouldn't be extreme. That would be ex essential. That would be wise. And so what Elijah did was he was making sure that he was cur curbing any more of that influence in their culture, any more of that influence in their people, because it had been prevalent, and it had been strong for quite some time. And the Lord said, we can't be having this now. So Elijah handled it. Elijah handled it. In our lives, we, we have challenges, right? We have a lot of challenges in our lives. We have challenges at work, school, education and relationships. We have all types of challenges. But one challenge that we should never compromise is claiming who the real God is. That should never be a challenge. It should be real easy. It should be on the forefront of our lips, on the edge of our tongue. Who is our God? It is the God of the Bible. God in, incarnate. 
in Jesus Christ. That's who God is. That's who he is.